You're going to see a picture up here on the screen. Uh, this is our oldest son. We adopted him when he was almost two years old. Uh, his name's Caleb. He could, he could barely talk or walk. He was malnourished and only 18 pounds when we adopted him when he was almost two. He was basically two years old. And he also had rickets. Um, and rickets locks your joints. It's, uh, it stiffens you up. It makes walking very difficult. And so when we uh, returned to Canada from Russia, we took him to Toronto Sick Children's Hospital, uh, where we were told this, that because rickets is caused by a lack of vitamin D or calcium, here's what you need to do, parents. You need to get him in the sun, feed him a healthy diet, and then let's see how it goes six months from now. <laughs> and so in other words, that which was severely impeding our son's ability to walk could be remedied by being in the sun and drinking milk. Wow. And we never went back to the hospital for rickets again. We went back with him for other things, but not rickets. Um, and it was amazing. This little boy began to pack back the good stuff. And we were first-time parents. We were wanting to treat our son to morozhna, ice cream, Russian morozhna. And uh, we would try to feed him ice cream only to have him hate it. He, he didn't want it. He wanted fruits and vegetables. And that's what he consumed and consumed and consumed. And now this two-year-old boy, any two-year-old, isn't able to put together a nutrition plan, but his body itself was the nutritionist. It was leading him and us, his parents, toward health. And so soon Caleb was not only walking, but running and jumping. And now he's 22 and a six-foot physical specimen and still doesn't have much of a hankering for desserts. As we step into Ephesians chapter 4 more deeply today, we're listening in as the Apostle Paul writes the Ephesian Christians, this 10-year-old fledgling community of Christians in the prosperous Roman city of Ephesus on the western shores of modern Turkey that is enormously proud of her identity as the guardians of the goddess Artemis. And the massive thoughts, if you've been following along in this series, the massive thoughts of Ephesians 1 to 3 lead to actually a massive question, which is how do we live out our identity in Christ and our calling as the church, the ecclesia, the saints called out to take responsibility for where we live? In Ephesians 4, we began to walk toward maturity and to answer that question. That, yeah, there's these amazing identity realities of who we are in Christ and who we are as the church, but how do we walk that out? How do we live that? And uh, we're one in the Lord, said Paul at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're part of one family. And we contend to remain as one. And that's where this journey to maturity begins. So I don't know if any of you, you know, probably lots of you are streaming all kinds of things these days, but I don't know if you've had the chance to see the, uh, the series, The Last Dance, the documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, if you remember those great teams. And it exposes the internal tensions and challenges behind the scenes of what was probably the best basketball team ever. They were one team and they were often fighting 
and sometimes fighting to remain one, and even 22 years later, some of the challenges for those teammates remains. All of us know in some way how challenging it is to maintain unity and togetherness, and not just the appearance of it, that's one thing, but the actuality of it, that's something else, because we can all put up a front of unity, right? Um, like the bulls did. But to walk in unity, well, that's, that's real sweetness. So the ecclesia is more than a team. The ecclesia, the church, is the family of God with one father. And so we continued to grow up then, moving from that unity of the spirit to grow up into understanding that the gifts that Jesus gives his body are to mature his body as a force of heaven's advance in the world. So the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, we talked about them last week. And now we come today to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 32, and we're going to keep learning to walk. Now walking is a key and common theme throughout Paul's letter that he's writing here to the Ephesians. He said in verse Chapter 2, verse 10, we walk out the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. In chapter 4, verse 1, we're to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that we've received. The Greek word translated, you know, walk in an English translation literally means to complete the circle. It's, it's what we have, it's like what we have come to believe comes full circle in our living. It's why some of the versions that you might have in front of you today, the Bible versions, will say something like live or do. We are learning to live a new life, to walk a mature, grown-up walk. So the ecclesia, the body of Christ, walks the life in Christ from the inside out. From the inside out. The body of Christ craves health in the same way that our son's malnourished body craved it. Because it's easy to live our lives from the outside in. Maybe you've had this experience in your life. I have. And I can start then with what I wear. Someone might say, yeah, this, this guy needs some help deciding what to wear. But that's a whole other question. But we can begin to say, well, the clothes make the person. And so we start from the outside in. And, or I can start with what I think and what my body wants to do and then ask my spirit to catch up. If it, if it feels good and it makes me happy, I'll do it. And so my body and my mind are, are the one, my thinking, they're the ones leading me. And our souls ra- rarely catch up to that way of outside in living because it's easy to live by appearances or to be led even by our emotions. And that's exactly what Paul has said is our problem. We gratified the cravings and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That was in chapter 2, verse 3. The way of, this way of living catches up to us. It wears out. You can't keep it up. The outside-in living crushes the spirit. It stunts maturity individually, and actually it stunts the maturity of communities of people. We are outside-in sinners when God has called us to be inside-out saints. Do you understand where we're going? The outside-in life is fleeting and it's futile. A friend of mine told me in the last week or so that four people in his life, including himself, had heart-related incidences in the same week, and two of the four of those died. Some appeared completely healthy, 
including my friend, who summarized in his own way what Paul is getting us toward here. He said, my friend wrote to me, good thing I'm an optimist and have God in my court. Otherwise, a week like this could break someone. My friend, you see, he's alive by God's spirit. He knows emotions, minds, and bodies are not the source of life. But when we're dead in our sin, without hope and without God in the world, we assume the outside in life. But God, right? That's been this wonderful phrase from the letter of, to the Ephesians. But God, the gospel, the good news of God, transforms us from the inside out. In Christ, we receive a spirit awakening, a spirit renewal. We are born again, is the words that Jesus uses in John chapter 3. And so as Paul uh, talks now about we, the saints, growing and maturing, there's a trajectory that he is taking us on. And I wonder if you notice it. Because for Paul, we actually started with the Spirit in chapter 4, verse is 1 to 6, and even back as far as chapter 1, verse 14. The inner life is the life out of which we live our being. And then we get the body parts working together, every gift and part building the movement from infancy to maturity. That's what we looked at in verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4. So think about it. You don't teach a child to walk by reading a book. You don't say, hey, little one, read this book on how to walk, and then we'll see how you do, and we'll do a little test. We'll see how that goes. No, of course not. Because as kids, we get our parts working together, and it's a little, it's a little gangly sometimes, and a little awkward, and we're helped up, and we risk, and we actually expect failure. We even celebrate it. Way to go! You fell, but you tried, right? Even our body, our son's body with rickets was trying to do this. And so a child starts engaging their parts by experimentation. Did, did Connor McDavid's mom know that his legs would make him skate like the wind when he first walked? Did Christine Sinclair's dad know that she'd kick a soccer ball so well when she first struggled to her shaky feet? No. Maturity emerges as we learn to walk. And this is essentially what Paul is saying about those gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, that build up the body. If we're not trying, we won't mature. And so now, when we come to verse 17, we come to the mind. So we've started in the spirit, we've moved to the parts of the body, and now we come to the mind. Verse 17, you must no longer live, literally walk. You must no longer walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. And then we come to what we should put on in verses 22 to 24. He says, put off, like put off your old self and put on the new self, you know, put it on, created to be like God. And all this gets us walking and the ecclesia begins to mature and shine in the world. But now this is where it gets tricky because this has a very personal component to it. The high-minded thoughts of Ephesians 1 to 3, they're inspiring. But playing in the world of great ideas is always easier than mucking about in the sandbox of real living. As a staff and a board, we've begun thinking more concretely about what it means for us to live as a fellowship in the COVID-19 days ahead. There are lots of ideas and things are always changing, mixed messages and reports from what to expect over the next number of months or year 
And we can see that God has been preparing us to be a gospel fellowship people in a new way in these months ahead. And I'd encourage you to listen to our Ecclesia podcast for more. You can find that on our website. But how, how we meet to gather in smaller groups through our area as a gospeling and fellowshipping people over the next year, how might we do this? But moving from big ideas to practical, that gets harder. Have you noticed that in your life? And this is the general experience with New Year's resolutions, right? We get inspired, we're going to walk a new way. And then the idea stays an idea. And you may get inspired by a good book or a TED Talk or maybe even the Spirit of God awakens you. But if you're not ready to do the hard, practical, nitty-gritty stuff in the trenches, you will never walk out that new way. You just won't. How many good ideas have you had that are on the shelf or in the dustbin or in your diary for someone to discover once you're dead and gone? Hmm. The big ideas of Ephesians 1 to 3 give us crucial positional foundation of who we are in Christ and who we are together as the body of Christ. But walking out the new life in Christ is where growing up happens because ideas do not equal maturity. Growing up is hard. Maturity is not cheap. It happens from the inside out, and this is all so personal. It's not someone else's job. It's yours and mine. Now, Paul begins with this, and you're going to see a little diagram here to give you the trajectory of Ephesians 4, 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. So you'll see the scripture on the screen. I want you to read it at home in just a second, if we can. There we go. Uh, so I'm just going to pause, and I want you to read this at home together. It's verse 17 of chapter 4. So that's the beginning of where we're heading today. We're going to end up in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, which says this. And now somebody, where you are, read this at home. So here's the trajectory. And again, back to that little diagram. At the top is no longer walk like the Gentiles, don't live like the Gentiles. And at the bottom is be imitators of God, your heavenly Father, as beloved children. So this is the trajectory of maturity from living like the Gentiles to being imitators of our heavenly Father. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said that we learned that in Christ, God has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles, uh, even the crazy Artemis-worshipping Ephesians were full members of God's family. It's stunningly good news. But now it seems that Paul is dissing the Gentiles again. He's telling the Gentiles to stop acting like Gentiles. Stop being yourself. Well, how offensive is that? But we must understand something. The saints, the church, this new humanity in Christ is neither Jew nor Gentile. Jews and Gentiles together have a new identity in Christ. And so Paul speaks the new family of God identity. He's a Jew speaking to Gentiles as one who was an, who was an enemy 
but now in Christ is their brother. And so having said that, though, the Gentile way of living is ultimately immature. Now, how offensive, right? That's, this is like, what, what is Paul talking about? This is all so offensive. Or is it? The Gentiles weren't and still aren't dumb. But the Gentile walk is essentially life from the outside in. We are led by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. That was back at the beginning of chapter 2. We follow our passions and our desires, which are usually connected to what we desire and think. And this is ultimately destructive and the full-blown life of human rebellion against God. This is ultimately the human story. It's Genesis chapter 3 on. And then along came the Jews. They and the walk of the Jews is very different. The story of the Jews is fascinating because they were Gentiles, but God. God called Abraham and his descendants would bless the nations. They would become the, un the, they would become the circumcised Jews. God called Moses to deliver the descendants of Abraham who were slaves in Egypt. He made a covenant promise to them. He gave them a sacrificial system by which a relationship with God could be maintained and sin paid for. And the Lord gave them the law, a way of being like him. In Leviticus, the Lord reiterates what the law is all about. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45 says this, for I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, did the Jews ask for this? No, they didn't. God called them. The whole thing is grace. It's a costly grace. And when the Gentile nations around them followed the passions and their desires, warring more, greedy after gain, chasing every pleasure, living the good life, as our Gentile culture might still say, the Jews were called to walk God's way. They carried the burden of being God's storefront for all the nations. One Yiddish proverb says this, "'Thou hast chosen us from among all the nations, what, O oh Lord, did you have against us? Isn't that great? The Jews never asked to be chosen. They were called. Now why? So that there would be a people on the earth who would be the representative of the one true living God in a world of futility. If we can't see it, you see, we won't believe it. That's how we are. And the Jews were a living parable of what God was up to in the world and what his character and his nature and his purposes were. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. So the prophets reminded the Jews of this all the time. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 to 7 says this. This is Isaiah reminding the people what they were about. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Hmm, this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 4. The Gentile walk is a walk in the dark. It is like constantly living in a Zoom fog. And I've had enough of that, thank you very much. The Gentile walk is darkened in understanding. It is separated from God. Despite all our learning, we are ignorant of what is true life and maturity. A few years ago, in response to one of those 
horrible high school shootings in the United States, a newspaper asked this question, what can possibly be done to stop these killings? And one letter to the editor said, how about we put up a sign that says, you shall not kill? Well, this was, of course, a little cheeky response to the movement of secularism to eliminate the Jewish Ten Commandments from all public institutions. The point is not the sign or where it should or shouldn't be. The point is exactly what Paul is saying here. The Gentile way is futile and darkened, and the law given to the Jews from outside even themselves and apart from even their own choosing shows us what God is like and how God would have us live. And so if we're going to grow up to be like God, which remember, that's the trajectory, don't walk like the Gentiles, imitate your heavenly father. If we're going to walk and grow up like God, then we need a new way of thinking and we need to be transformed from the inside out, which is precisely what God's revelation of himself through the Jews revealed to a world dazed and confused and liking it. We love being in our own space. We love our dazed and confusedness. We want it our way and we'll die defending our rights. Our hard hearts have led to our darkened and cloud mind, clouded minds. That's what Paul says in verses 18 and 19. The Gentile way is not led from the heavenly place. The Jewish way was the struggle of carrying the heart and the will of the heavenly place full term. And now that Christ has come and raised Jew and Gentile up from our spiritual death and given us the Holy Spirit, we're finally able to walk away from the Gentile way, learning to walk out God's will, which was fully expressed in Jesus the Jew who fulfilled the law. And we're now growing up together as one family of God, the ecclesia, to be like our one father. Do you see this? Isn't it awesome? Through his family, God is seeking to mature the world as their one father. He wants all to be like him. And now that in Christ, he has made the salvation and new humanity possible, even places like Ephesus and Kelowna, or wherever you are this morning, can finally become like him, which was his desire in creation to begin with. And so what is the Gentile walk we need to leave behind? The silly old walk that we have bureaucratized. Well, Paul points to a few sweeping signs of our futility and callousness. First, in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. <laughs> this week, our family was streaming some music on YouTube great king and country song for COVID-19 days called Together. Really great song, hopeful lyrics. If you're looking for hope tonight, raise your hand. Great song. And immediately after that song was finished, a commercial came on YouTube for a violent video game where you just shot each other up. Sensitivity sacrificed on the altar of consumerism. We combine good with evil and we shrug. YouTube was indifferent to its internal hypocrisy. They are just selling. It's just what they do. 
And Paul says that in our callousness, the Gentile mind gives itself up, basically waves the white flag and falls headlong into sensuality. And this word is not just a sexualized word, but it also means like violent spite. We're greedy to run at every kind of impurity, justifying self-interest regardless of the cost. We refuse restraint. We demand our rights. Even if our rights are wrongs, my personal lust and greed trumps the greater good. That's the Gentile way. But notice the difference, that Jesus has gifted the ecclesia to exercise gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, to live her call as God's workmanship in the world. What is personal in the kingdom of God is for the building up of others, not self-gratification. Hmm. The Gentile practice is impurity. Personal gifts have been mixed with my personal rights, building myself up my way. This is the Gentile fog, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we, when we hear it described that way, we go, well, of course, it's not supposed to be that way. And yet something in us, this is what's so fascinating about us, something in us hardens, and we want to defend it. And there's plenty of teaching that comes out of this fog that will even sound good. And this, says Paul, is not the way you learned Christ. Look at verses 20 through 24. Paul says, Now, that, however, is not the way that, of the life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your minds, and then to put on the, self, the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The way of Christ, the walk of the Messiah, is the new life of the new humanity. We are to be renewed in our minds, think differently. We wash our minds in a new truth and reality about who we are and who the people of God are, and then we put off the old life like old clothes. So the Christian, you see, is not a better, more moral version of the old self. The Christian is a new self altogether. The old person has been crucified with Christ, and we are now seated in a chosen and adopted position as heirs with the Son of God. We are new creations. The Christian is created to be like God. What? That's what Paul says in verse 24. Created to be like God. The great fourth century defender of the faith, Athanasius, said it this way. He became what we are so that we may become what he is. And that is exactly what the Jewish law said to Israel. Be like me. This was impossible until sin was dealt with entirely and we were freed from its grip, which no animal sacrifice could ever do. Only God himself could be the lamb. And that was Jesus Christ. And now every Jew or Gentile who turns in repentance and in faith to God through Jesus the lamb has the new Jesus way craving to emerge from the inside out. And if you thought Christianity was about behaving better or rule following, you've not known the gospel. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found, found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> that 
is true. What is the Christian ideal? The Christian way is the end of my rights and the beginning of the Lordship of Jesus. The Christian way is death to self and living life henceforth as a new creation. And why would a full heir in the household keep wearing the old clothes of a slave? From the inside out, we are growing up to imitate our Father in heaven because he loved us. And so, what, do, what is the old Gentile way that we're putting off and, are, and that we should be, and what are we putting on? Because, you know, it's always easy to point out what other people should change. And we all have stuff, our own stuff to put off, and that's what Paul is leading us to now. So, verse 25, we are to put off falsehood and put on truthfulness. So somebody in your home right now, read this scripture, go for it. What's Paul calling us to? Paul's calling us to put off the pseudo-facades and be honest. And I've seen the power of this in my life group and in my triad that I'm a part of. Honest truthfulness, exposing of myself. Imagine if your arm was broken, but it kept telling the rest of your body, no, nope, we're all good over here, no problems. But the whole body knows and it can feel and it can tell that something's not right with the arm. The way to maturity and health is honesty. Our son's malnourished body was being very honest. We're not well. We want fruit. Put away the blessed ice cream and give me a banana. That's what his body was saying. Truth-telling is one of the key signs of the work of the Holy Spirit and of becoming like God, for he is the truth-teller. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We avoid truthfulness. And when we avoid truthfulness, it is often because our futile minds conclude it's safer that way. But in the body of Christ, we walk in truth because we are one body and we're saved not by how amazing we can appear, but by how amazing God is. And in Christ, no one has anything left to prove, but we all have stuff to put off that we need to get honest about. The next thing we're to put off is rash anger and so that we can put on reconciliation. Now here we're going to get real in your home. Who's the last person in your household this morning that got angry? Come on. You get to read the scripture. All right? Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Go ahead and read. So there is a righteous anger that gets angry at evil. There actually is that. It, this is actually the type of wrath and anger that God himself knows and responds to. But most of us follow the emotion of anger into all kinds of trouble, and it creates brokenness, and in our anger we live unreconciled lives. And unreconciled anger that we let the sun go down on instead of dealing with, as Psalm 4, verse 4, called the Jews to, produces offense by the truckload. And we 
are a culture easily offended. This is the foothold of the devil to mess with the world. That Last Dance documentary revealed a Michael Jordan who used personal offense, even imagined and fabricated offense, to motivate his drive to win. Yeah, we might say, but he was a winner. You can't argue with winning. Well, you can't argue with it if you think like a Gentile. <laughs> but God, our creator and our savior, is the winner, and we are called to walk his way, not, not to win at all costs. Winning is fleeting. Maturity is fruitfulness. We are a culture of offense, and it destroys. We are angry, and we sin. We don't reconcile, but we expect others to. Do you see how personal this is getting? I hope it's uncomfortable. We chew on offense like a cow chews a cud until we lash out and destroy, and we become, we become the foot of the devil in someone's life, our homes, our relationships, our workplaces, even our churches become the devil's playground. And this is immaturity, the futile walk of the Gentiles. It is not the way of our father. A couple weeks ago, we had an angry moment in our home and I lost it more than was right. My prophet's son comes marching into the room and he calls it out. You are inviting hell into our home. Oh, he was right. And I needed to repent and to reconcile before the sun went down. For the way of my father is to be angry and not sin. To not let the emotions lead us, but the mind of Christ. Some of us have work to do in putting some stuff off in this area. And then Paul says, we have to put off taking and put on Giving, gaining, saving, and giving, if you remember back to a series we looked at at the beginning of this year. Verse 28, someone in your home, read it right now. So the Gentile mind seeks to get all we can for ourselves. But the inside way out of Christ moves us toward personal responsibility, toward using my gifts to provide and share. God is not a taker. He is a giver. This is the conversion story of Zacchaeus, right? Jesus' salvation in his life became evident in his immediate response and readiness to share. The body of Christ, the mature ecclesia, aren't takers. They are givers. Generosity the other-centered life through the use of my given gifts stuns the world. So work at something. Don't take shortcuts. Lend your gifts. Find the joy in the opportunities given to you and share, contribute, gain, save, give. And then we are to put off rotten talk and speak to build one another up. Somebody in your place, read verse 29. Nothing destroys community like rotten talk, slander, gossip, even some of our sarcasm, of which I know I can be guilty of. This can be putrid, like throwing rotten tomatoes at one another. And God speaks 
God speaks life to the world. He speaks to save. Jesus is the word of God made flesh to build up a people who are a new creation. The Spirit reminds us of the life-giving words of Jesus. The speech of the ecclesia is not the noise of Gentiles. It is the nectar of heaven. We build up with the everyday grace of our words. And there are a lot of grand plans that will never happen in your lifetime, but you will have words every day. And then Paul turns to a grand summary, verses 30 to 32. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Putting on this new way grows us up so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The spirit feels pain. The Greek word here is lupeo. It's the severe and intense sorrow that's often felt in the pain of childbirth. It was used in that context. The birth, the spirit birthed us into the family of God. And our new identity and position is because of the panting, laboring spirit of God. And then if we're then to keep on the old self and keep thinking and acting like Gentiles is just to add to the miracle of the new birth, the pain of great disappointment, to keep walking the old life, to not go with the Holy Spirit that seeks to blow us full sail as saints of the ecclesia is to grieve the spirit of God. And a parent will feel this when the child that they love wanders, rebels or rejects home. When the deep pain of love is not reciprocated, some of you as parents have experienced that. Some of you as kids did that to your parents. Maybe you're still doing it. This is the story of the prodigal son. This is all our journey with the father, but God. God has brought us into his life, the God-like life. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're adopting the walk of the family we have been adopted into and happily truth-telling when we've stumbled because we're finally coming out of our fog. And so bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, all that stuff is not what we walk because we think differently. And by the way, this is actually a pretty good indication of the type of people who were coming into God's family from Ephesus. Now, Paul's not writing this because it might be hypothetical, hypothetically true. He knew them. Why point out these things if they weren't real? Don't you remember how they rioted when Paul and his team first brought the message of Jesus to, Eph uh, to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19? Methinks they were pretty aggressive people. Full frontal Gentiles, I think, is what they were. But they were now growing up into the Jesus way. And so I wonder, what are the things that God would call out among us cultured, passive British Columbians? Hmm. We all bring our cultural, ethnic, family history, and excuse baggage into the family of God. I wonder what grieves the Spirit among us. Instead of all this, we are to learn to act like our dad. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. The Greek word there refers to the healthy functioning of your intestines. Because in the ancient world, place the emotions where we'd say the heart is, they placed it in the intestines. <laughs> and so we invite Jesus, to use Paul's language, we'd actually invite Jesus into our guts. <laughs> and we feel with him for one another, tender-hearted toward one another. Notice 
Notice that all that we're putting on here in Ephesians chapter 4 can only be realized in relationship. The grand vision of chapters 1 to 3 comes excruciatingly close to home. It is personal. It is to those nearby. This stuff is a slow walk. It takes intestinal fortitude. Chris Rice and Emmanuel Catangola have this great quote, speed meets a wall where reconciliation is measured by what is nearest to us. When we see the task of being reconciled within our own homes, families, and congregations. We all talk big ideas. And yet, they go on to say, we cannot fix the marriages among us. We find healing with an alienated relative impossible, and we're even overcome by anger toward those who have wounded us. On learning the limp of the Gentiles, to walk like our Heavenly Father happens right where you live in your isolation. Is it time for you to take personal responsibility to put off the old life so that the call of the church may shine? Our everyday life is the first place of growing up so that the glory of Jesus can be seen. The wisdom of God disrupts the powers of darkness when we who were lost in impurity, led by our emotions, put on kindness and feel in our guts for one another. And let me just say this as we close. There is nothing that upends this darkness like forgiveness. We have Christian Iraqi friends, and I may have told you this story before, but it's just so powerful to me. We have Christian Iraqi friends who fled from ISIS. They suffered horribly. They lost everything. And one day we were in a park with them, talking about their experience. And my gut, my gut's just aching as I listen to their plight. And next to us in the park were Muslims, Muslim women clad in full burqas. And I asked our friend, how, how, how does it feel to be living now here in close proximity to those who may well believe some of the same things of those who hurt you? How do you forgive? And he looked at me almost shocked and he said, well, I must forgive. I can't be a Christian if I don't forgive. And some of us, some of you, are holding grudges, living from your emotions, thinking like Gentiles. You have not put off the old self, and you're grieving the Holy Spirit because you refuse to walk out forgiveness. We don't forgive because we don't feel like it. But we don't forgive because it feels good. It hurts like hell. We forgive because it is good. It is mature. It is our new clothes. We forgive because we want nothing more than to act like our Heavenly Father. The power of forgiveness is great. It is the key reflection of our Heavenly Father who forgave you. Forgiving me was costly. I know what I'm capable of. Forgiving me was costly. How can I not forgive you? The ecclesia, you see, is always aware that we were without hope and without God in the world. We deserved hell. But God, the church that is full of unforgiveness, is prodigal. She is adulterous. She grieves the Holy Spirit. She is unchristian. And she will be snuffed out. The ecclesia who practices forgiveness will change the world. She will disrupt history as imitators of God, beloved children of a good 
good father. That's the trajectory of maturity, to walk upright with dignity and responsibility and maturity, to walk in love like Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We will imitate, emulate, mimic the walk of our father from the inside out. I wonder what God's saying into your soul today, into your relationships. Let's pray together. Still your heart and invite God to speak to you. Pastor Garth challenged us earlier about forgiveness, and I just wonder how many of us are trapped. How many of us are trapping others? What stuff needs to get put off? God, we need your help. Forgive and renew us. Thank you that by the work of your spirit, you are actually giving us a hunger and a thirst to, to walk like you, to, to eat like you eat, to be about the things that you're about, to live into this maturity that is ours in Christ. Lord, would you teach us? Would you give us courage? Some of us need to have the courage to make some decisions and follow through on what your Spirit's prompting us today. God, we need you. Please help us, Lord. We need you. From the inside out, Lord, work by the power of your Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.